Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Listen for what God is saying to God's church. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he returned to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and taught them. The legal experts and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Placing her at the center of the group, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him, because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him, so he stood up and replied, Whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, No one, sir. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of this scripture. Hi, I'm uh, John Shangyo, and my wife Alyssa and my son Marcus have been here at Urban Village for a couple of years now. As you can see, Marcus is the one dancing in the chair. <laughs> um, I'm pinch hitting for Pastor Emily, who's in Philadelphia today. And I really wanted to thank her for giving me this incredibly easy topic of love the sinner and hate the sin. <laughs> Let's get into it. Larry, if you could put up the first slide. So by now, I think that most of us are familiar with the Colin Kaepernick Nike ad. Anybody who hasn't seen it? Almost immediately after its release, however, images began to be shared on social media showing the same slogan of believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything, superimposed over the face of Pat Tillman. Tillman turned down a $4 million NFL contract in order to enlist in the United States Army after September 11. He was killed in Afghanistan in 2004. When you look at the images of these two men and think of the way that they gave up their lucrative careers in order to stand, or in Kaepernick's case, kneel, to defend their communities from the things that threaten them. I think it's safe to say that the words believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything, equally applies to both. But when you look at the timing and the context in which Tillman's image has been shared, it's clear that what many people had in mind was not simply to honor a man who sacrificed a celebrity career and his very life. Too often, people shared Tillman's image in order to discredit Colin Kaepernick, and more importantly, 
Mock the message demanding racial justice and accountability. A family, I love the U.S. Army. It was one of the great honors of my life to serve in Afghanistan, and I think Pat Tillman deserves to be honored for his sacrifice. I love the fact that people have been reminded of his legacy. But I hate the fact that people, often at the upper echelons of power and influence, have deployed his legacy to hurt, oppress, and discredit the sacrifice of a man similarly doing what he can to protect and defend his community. They've turned Tillman's face into a mask for hate and injustice. Now, using true words to discredit the truth is the devil's game plan. The devil quoted scripture in the desert to tempt Christ. So church, the most crooked lies are the ones that bend, but don't break the truth. And there's no lie in the Christian lexicon as crooked, nor as close to the good news of the gospel, or that can be as devastatingly harmful as that counterfeit command to love the sinner and hate the sin. I know many of you have heard this line before. Maybe you've believed it, said it, or applied it, or even had it hurled into your face as a justification for horrific things done to hurt you. I know our series is called Fake Bible, but despite its abuse, I think sometimes love the sinner and hate the sin absolutely aligns with the call of Christ. When you hear the story of the mother in Georgia who this week turned down or turned in her own 15-year-old son for murder, despite the fact that it broke her heart, what else could you describe this with but love the sinner and hate the sin? But the fact that very likely many of us have been hurt so deeply and so unfairly by those trying to live out this principle displays the danger that true words used for false purposes can have. Today, I want to try and get straight what it would mean to, in a Christ-like way, love a sinner and hate a sin. Our passage today offers us unique insight into both the way that God loves sinners, but also the specific way that God hates sin. And it often doesn't look the same as what we think of when we hear the phrase. At Urban Village, in my experience, we're great at loving the sinner. But it's a temptation, especially in a church like ours, whose defining characteristic is inclusivity, to neglect the very real hate God has for sin. I want to hone in on hate today, because to neglect God's hate is as fake Bible as any of the other things that we've looked at in this series. Now, at first glance, admittedly, it's hard to see the hate that's flowing through this passage. Right? Jesus isn't here overturning the tables or uh, making a whip out of cords. He doesn't even throw out a woe to you or compare the Pharisees to something insulting like he does elsewhere in the gospel. The very few words that he speaks all deal with non-condemnation. And the only act of defiance he displays is to take a knee and scribble something the text doesn't record in the dust. But the hate is very much there. 
The Pharisees have dragged this woman, they say caught in the very act of adultery, to Jesus. And in not so many words, they demand that he pronounce a death sentence upon her for her crime. All of this is supposedly very proper according to the law. But it's clear that the Pharisees aren't actually interested in the law. They're not interested in the woman's sin. They're not interested in her as a person at all. And that is the root of the evil in this story. The author tells us this, this poor woman is just a pawn in a plan to entrap Jesus. And we don't just have the author's analysis to go on. The fact that it expressly states that the woman was caught in the act and is standing there without her partner demonstrates that the Pharisees don't care about justice. The law that they are using to condemn the woman states that both the parties to the adultery are to be put to death. And if she was caught in the act, so was he. The woman has the misfortunate part to be in a society where her gender too often pays the price for the sexual misdeeds of men while they act with impunity. For the Pharisees, it's a foolproof plan. By bringing her before Jesus and the gathered crowd, on the one hand, they demonstrate their piety, and they increase their social standing. On the other hand, they trap Jesus into either going against the Jewish law or the Roman law. For you see, only Roman magistrates could sentence people to death or give them a reprieve. The Pharisees think they've put Jesus in the ultimate catch-22. The Pharisees' use of a valid scriptural law was not to honor God or preserve justice, but rather to find a way to discredit or even have Jesus killed. So in summary, what's happening in our passage is this. Some haughty and overconfident Pharisees walk up with evil intent to Jesus because they've developed what they think is a devious plan that will stir up the seeds of discord and bloodlust in the crowd, and if all goes well, both kill this woman that offends their sensibilities, and at the same time discredit, or better yet, kill Jesus and get rid of him as a threat to their power. I want you to remember this description in the next few moments. Because family, Proverbs 6 tells us that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now despite Jesus' outward even keel, the Pharisees have just gone step by step through the list of sins that Proverbs explicitly tells us God hates. That Jesus, who is by very nature God, considers abominations. Now, looking at these seven sins, what's important to note is that the common thread between them is that they are sins of oppression. They are sins that in the most manifest of ways clearly stop a human being from living the fullness of their humanity and that stifle their flourishing. The arrogance and disdain of the powerful 
the liars and cheats who deceive others to achieve their ends, the person who harnesses hate and discord to rise to power, and the person who lets the innocent be killed to maintain the status quo. They are interested in people not as people, but only as stepping stones for their advantage. So if we believe Proverbs, the measure of sin is not the letter of the law, or even the various rules and ordinances laid out in Scripture. Jesus will tell these same Pharisees in another passage, you keep all of the rules and laws, and yet you put impossible burdens on the people of God. In your love of the letter of the law, Pharisees, you fail to see the human cost and therefore neglect the love and the true justice of God. Family, sin then for Jesus is less about the letter of the law than it is about the human being and the things that keep us from being our fullest and truest selves before God. Now if that's at the core of sin, it's obvious we should all hate sin. But what's less obvious and where so many fail to hate as God hates is what Jesus' actions in our passage tell us we should do when we hate, where we should direct that hate. Now, we know that Christ can overturn tables with the best of them, that his words can be overtly cutting, but none of the words that he speaks in this passage, either to the woman nor, surprisingly, to the Pharisees, condemn their sins. Now, does Christ simply not judge any of the behavior on display as sin? Either the woman's adultery or the Pharisees' misuse of the law? Absolutely not. Christ's last words to the woman are, sin no more. And in the Greek, it's explicit that Jesus' words convict the Pharisees of their own sins. But what Christ does not do is condemn either the woman nor the Pharisees. Condemnation is a very special word in Scripture. In the New Testament, the word we translate as condemnation, katakrino, takes the root word for judgment, krino, and intensifies it with the preposition kata, which means against. Katakrino literally means then to judge against. That's not a mental judgment but it implies the need to pronounce a punishment. The biblical use of this word, though, is complicated by the fact that punishment in the Bible has a very specific purpose. In the bigger biblical picture, and even in other non-Christian sources like Pindar and Herodotus in the ancient world, katakrino, or condemnation of sin, is not doled out simply because some legal code or some certain crime demands a punishment. It's not a matter of punishment-fitting crimes. Now, rather than some mandatory minimum, the biblical idea of punishment is purposeful. Punishment and therefore condemnation exist in order to protect people from the things that oppress them. Romans 8.3 illustrates this. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What the passage tells us then is that God's condemnation of sin is to save the sinner, to allow them to live to the fullest and the truest, and centers not around the law, but on the relation of Jesus to the sinner that he loves. God's punishment then is less about the letter of the law and more about the well-being of the individual person. Even God's hate, then, is rooted in God's love for a specific and unique person and not some generic law. Now, the mistake that too often is made when people try, then, to love the sinner and hate the sin is that they look to the law to understand how they should love rather than look at love to understand the law. So their hate manifests itself in terrible and even sinful ways. Now Christ's actions in our passage aren't governed by the letter of the law. Otherwise, the Pharisees would be right. While Jesus doesn't neglect the law, obviously there's the admonition to go and sin no more. His grace towards the woman and even the grace he shows to the Pharisees is predicated on ensuring that the vulnerable woman is not harmed. He does tongue-lash the Pharisees on other occasions. He does overturn the tables in the temple. But in this instance, he looks at what the woman needs, her vulnerability, her unique situation, and does the thing that will ensure she isn't harmed. If he had condemned her, she would have been killed. If he had let his hate manifest in condemnation of the Pharisees, she probably would have been killed. So Christ chose to kneel and by doing so convicted the conscience of the crowd with their own sins. He loved the woman first and let his love for this specific woman standing before him determine the way that his hatred of sin, even the sins of the Pharisees, manifested themselves. So to be like Christ, to love the sinner and hate the sin like Christ, we must remember that loving the sinner, not any sinner or sinners, but this sinner or that sinner, all of us individual sinners, comes before and determines the way that we hate the sin. Let me conclude with this thought. For many in our community, which prides itself on being inclusive, but especially inclusive and affirming of our LGBTQI siblings, this idea of love the sinner and hate the sin oftentimes has its primary valence in the way that it has been used to justify hateful things and hateful actions directed at the queer community. And I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that the Bible, our Bible, has complicity in this. In no uncertain terms, the very same Paul who I've quoted in this sermon condemns the lifestyle that for so many of our beloved siblings in this church and beyond is so central to their identity and the full expression of their humanity. It's a modern instance 
of Pharisees who dig up archaic rules to oppress and secure their own political power. Paul was indeed a Pharisee after all. But it would be fake Bible for me not to say that those things aren't in the Bible or that Paul doesn't mean what he means. But one time, my son Marcus asked me and my wife, basically, if the Bible says two boys or two girls loving each other is a sin and sin is bad, why do we think that their love is good? Our response to him was this. Look at the people around you who love you and who you love. Look at the men who love men or the women who love women that you know. Does it seem like their love is destroying them or hurting others? If they didn't have that love, do you think their lives would be as rich? Do you think that they would seem as blessed by God if they didn't have each other? And his answer to all of these questions was no. So we asked again, do you think it's a sin to live that way then? Again, his answer was no. So I asked him, you learned in school that some people use the Bible to justify having slaves too. And you know that's wrong, so you do, do you think then it's better to read the Bible through the lens of those relationships you know to be beautiful and good, or to try and make them ugly because of one sentence whose context is complicated. Friends, when in doubt, God tells us to have the faith of a vulnerable child. Church, if we look at Christ's example in our passage, if, if we, like Jesus, see the law, not through the eyes of legal experts, but through the eyes of the vulnerable, how should we respond? How does truly loving the sin determine how we hate the sin? Pray with me. Dear God, help us to love in the way that you love and to hate in the way that you hate. Help our hate to tear down the walls that oppress and break the chains of injustice. And now help our love Help all those find their truest selves and flourish in the world that you've created for them. Amen.